If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 7. We are making our way through Paul's great letter, perhaps arguably the greatest letter ever written, is what it has been called, um, to the church in Rome. And the Apostle Paul has been um, continuing on talking about the benefits of what we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus in union with Christ. And we are looking this morning as we enter into chapter 7 at verses 1 through 6. And so you'll find that on page 943 if you're using the church Bible, Romans 7, 1 through 6. And um, you know, you'll find it helpful to be reading along there with me in your own copy of scripture. Before we do, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Father, we do come to you in great humility and weakness in neediness. We come acknowledging that we have nothing, Lord. We hold out empty hands. We come to you that you would give us bread from heaven. We come, Father, and we acknowledge that unless you build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless you guard the city, they stay awake in vain. And so, our God, we come this morning and we acknowledge that my preaching and our hearing in and of itself will not change us unless your spirit comes. And so, Lord, please send the spirit of the Lord Jesus. We pray that he would accompany your word and that we would be changed deeply and transformed deeply by the preaching of the gospel. Father, make us to feel our need for Christ this morning. Make us to understand the great blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Make us to know our union with him. All that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans 7, beginning... In verse 1, there the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man, While her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder what you would think if I told you that every Christian will in their life experience the worst marriage and the best marriage. I think you would say you are crazy. My marriage is definitely not the best marriage, but I doubt it's the worst marriage. Some of you are kids, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And some of you would say, well, that's an unrealistic expectation. Nobody has the best marriage. And actually, I know unbelievers that have good marriages, and I know believers that have bad marriages, and nothing looks the way we think it's supposed to look. And yet it's interesting because the Apostle Paul finds in the illustration of marriage, he finds this beautiful illustration of the Christian's experience. The Christian is in the worst marriage ever before he's in Christ or she's in Christ. He is bound to the law. 
He is under the law as a rule of condemnation because he's a sinful. It's the worst marriage, and it's entirely his or her fault. It's not the law's fault that it's a bad marriage. It's entirely the fault of sinners who are bound to the law. They are under the law as a covenant of works by nature, a broken covenant in Adam. They're in union with Adam. Paul has told us that in chapter 5. They are married to the law. There is no breaking from that. And yet what happens in the gospel is that they are freed from that and they are united to another, even to him who died for them and rose again, so that Jesus becomes the head of his church, the heavenly bridegroom of his people, and he has, by his own death and resurrection, instituted the greatest marriage, a marriage that one day will be shown to be the best marriage of any marriage in consummate glory. And yet the Apostle Paul finds in that uh, illustration, he finds a perfect way to explain the relationship of a believer to the law before he's a Christian and the believer to the law after he's a Christian. Now, if you took a pen and you went through Romans chapter 7 and you underlined the word law, you would see how prominent the idea of law is. Now, law has been very prominent. The law of God has been very prominent all through the book of Romans. In the first five chapters, we saw that the believer cannot be justified by the law, that it's an impossibility that the believer is, uh, by nature, the unbeliever, I'm sorry, cannot be justified by the law, that by nature he is under the law as a letter of condemnation, that the law came in to make sin exceedingly sinful, that no one can do any good by nature, there are none who do good, no, not one, there is none righteous, there is no one who does anything good. All have turned aside, all have become corrupt from their mouth to their throat to every part of man is completely and totally and pervasively depraved, fallen in Adam. And so Jesus Christ, the second Adam, comes to give you a righteous standing. And we've seen that. And then we've seen that we have not only been justified by faith apart from the law, but that we have been freed from sin's power in chapter 6. Paul has gone on to talk about what we've been freed from. We've been freed from this, this bondage of trying to justify ourselves by what we do. We've been freed from the power of sin and the death of Jesus. The power of sin has been broken. We have been made free to pursue righteousness. We have been set free to righteousness. That's what we've seen all through chapter 6. And now Paul is picking back up on something that he introduced in chapter 6, verse 14. Notice there, he says, Sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul doesn't explain what he means by that there. That's an interesting thing. He throws that out. You're not under law. You're under grace. What do you mean, Paul? I'm not going to tell you. Paul goes on to talk about being set free from slavery to sin, being made slaves of righteousness through the rest of the chapter. And now Paul picks back up on what he introduced in verse 14 of chapter 6, here in chapter 7, and notice what he says. He says, Do you not know, brothers, I am speaking to those who know the law? And now notice what he says. He says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Now, in order for us to understand what Paul means in chapter 6, verse 14, and what he says here, at the beginning of chapter 7, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see the spiritual marriage illustrated, and then we're going to see the spiritual marriage applied. Well, 
Paul is speaking to people who know the scriptures. He's not only speaking to Jews. He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. And notice the way that he brings this subject up there in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers? You should know this. If you know the law, if you know uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, you should understand you should understand the nature of marriage illustrated. And what Paul goes on to say is that I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, I think in our day, it would help us, especially in a day when marriages are just throwaway things in our society, to really come back to the scriptures and to understand that God's intention was that a man and a woman be married forever. Now, Jesus will say that God permitted divorce in certain cases because of the hardness of men's hearts. But the principle of marriage in itself is that it ought to be an unbreakable contract between a man and a woman. That was God's intention. That's what the law set out. Jesus taught that. Paul now teaches it. God everywhere says the principle of marriage is that the only way a marriage ought to end before God, normally, by principle, the only way a marriage ought to end is one of the parties dies. Notice what Paul says. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And so Paul says, as a principle illustrated, the marriage principle is the best illustration he can come up with to explain our relationship to the law of God, that the only way that you can come out from under the law of God, the only way you can come out from under it as a, rule, a condemnation, a, a law, a, a, something that holds us under the condemnation of God because of our sin, the only way is if the husband dies. So no more can you be taken out of union with Adam in all of that fallen condition than that your husband, the law of God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, somehow passes away. That's what Paul's saying. What Paul is basically arguing with this illustration, he wants you to understand the seeming impossibility of that happening. That by nature, that we are, we are in Adam and we are under God's law, and God's law is not going to bend. You know, people, they want, they want God's law to just go away. Just go away. I want my own law. And the Bible everywhere says God's law is inflexible, immovable. It is eternal. The Ten Commandments are going to be what judge, judges all men. All men are going to be judged on the basis of their performance with regard to the Ten Commandments. I am, you are, that's going to be Judgment Day. How did you do with regard to the Ten Commandments? And the Bible says you're doing very, very, very poorly. You are doing much, much, much worse than you realize which is why we need Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is using this illustration to show that we have this problem. We have this bad marriage. We have this marriage to the law that, that I am constantly under the condemning voice of the law by nature. And it's not that the law is bad. Paul will everywhere defend the law as being good and holy and just. And he'll say actually in chapter 8 that it's because of the weakness of our sinful flesh. We're the problem. We are the problem party in the marriage. You know, whenever I counsel people... And myself, in marriage, the first thing you say is, instead of focusing on the other party, you focus on yourself. 
Each person in the marriage relationship needs to focus on themselves and say, where am I the problem? How have I contributed to a problem in this marriage? How have I made this marriage worse? Not what have they done, but what have I done? And it's interesting because Paul basically is, is saying to us through this illustration that we're the problem and the problem is irremediable and that the only way we can get out from this condemning rule is if somehow it be removed as if a husband died so that we be released from that law. And notice what Paul says in verse 3, carrying on this illustration, he says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it's impossible for you to be under law and under grace simultaneously. Paul's saying for you to be both under law and under grace simultaneously is as impossible as a woman living with two husbands at the same time. So she'd be an adulteress. So by the law of marriage, that's an impossibility. Paul wants you to get this. He's not trying to be clever or creative. Paul's trying to help us get my standing to the law of God, my standing to the grace of God. And it's actually interesting. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out something I had never really seen here. It's not just marriage that Paul has in mind. It's not just the mutual contracting of husband and wife and the bonding together legally of a husband and a wife that Paul has in mind for this illustration. There's also a sense in which the wife is seen as subject to the husband here. I know, you know, I joke, I say that's the S word. I get that. She's submissive to her husband. She's subject. The Bible everywhere says the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now, Husbands are to love their wives, respect them, be tender to them, be gentle with them. That's the kind of leadership God intends. But God has ordained that men be the head of the household and that the wife is in that sense subject to and under her husband. And notice that Paul is kind of carrying out this idea from verse 14 of chapter 6. You are no longer under law, but you are under grace. You see how Paul's developing this. He's saying, as in marriage, the wife is subject to her husband So in the spiritual world, we are either subject to the law or we are subject to grace. Those are the two spiritual husbands, the law and grace, or Jesus Christ. And everybody is under one of those two husbands spiritually. And so Paul says here, notice, as he says that it's an impossibility for her to be under the the leadership and headship and, and and representativeness of the law and to be under the grace of God. Notice what he says there again at the end of verse three, if her husband dies, she is free from the law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, what Paul has done here in this illustration is he's actually not only shown the impossibility of being under both law and grace simultaneously, Law is a rule of condemnation. Grace is a rule of life and blessing and everlasting reward and joy and peace and everything good in the presence of Jesus. He's not only setting out the impossibility of those two things, of being under both at the same time. He's actually helping us along to see how we come to be delivered from one and be married to the other. Paul wants you to understand what has happened. What has happened to you if you're a Christian? How have you gone from the worst marriage to the best marriage spiritually? There, and, and Paul's saying there's, there's the possibility of that happening if the husband dies. 
Now, that's the illustration, and it's complicated. Um, I know it's not easy. Things in the scriptures are not always easy. It's, it's a complicated illustration. We have to work. We have to think about these things carefully. But Paul, I think, finds in the marriage illustration, and it is interesting, isn't it, that he's gone from using the slave illustration in chapter 6 to the marriage illustration here in chapter 7. I think, I think Paul actually sees this as a greater illustration to illustrate what has happened. The slave illustration, been set free from one master, delivered to the gracious Lord Jesus Christ. You're a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. Now he says, you were married to the law, but if there's some way that the, the law, your, your condemning husband can die, you can be set free from that. And so there's, there's, Paul's carrying this illustration out, and, he, and he's essentially saying, if that could happen, you could marry another person. Notice now, though, secondly, and here's the real push of this passage, that in the application of the spiritual marriage set out here, notice what he says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Now, Paul is going to argue, as you, as you know, that if you're in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the condemnation of the law, that you have been delivered, that you are now under the gracious Lord Jesus, that you are united to him, you're no longer united to Adam, that you are one flesh with him, that he is the bridegroom. He oftentimes calls himself the bridegroom. That's one of Jesus' self-designations. He says he calls himself the bridegroom. John the Baptist knows that he's the bridegroom. In that sense, Jesus understands that marriage was created and that he ordained marriage at the beginning to be a picture of him as the heavenly bridegroom. John the Baptist will point to him and John will say he was merely the friend of the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Um, The Apostle Paul loves this. He loves this illustration. He loves the applications of it. He'll actually say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That it's one of the, it's the richest picture. Jonathan Edwards believed that this was so great an illustration biblically that he actually said, God created the world and ordained all things that would happen, including the fall and redemption, so that his son might have a bride. So that why did God ordain? That's the big question. Why, why ordain all this evil and all the fall? Because he wanted a bride for his son. His son would come from heaven to earth to redeem a bride. He would come to lay down his life for his bride, for his church. Give himself for her. There's a striking parallel, I think, between Eve being taken from the side of Adam and the church, in a sense, coming from the pierced side of the Lord Jesus. He is the second Adam. He's the heavenly bridegroom. And Paul is now pushing to help us understand what it means for us as believers not to be under the condemnation of the law, but to be united to this glorious bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. He says, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, if we went back to the illustration... And we, and we followed it out. Paul said, you're married to the law, and that means you're under its condemnation by nature, and the only way you can be married to another is if your husband dies. So that's, that's the possibility, right? That's the loophole. I get out of this marriage if the husband dies. The wife 
gets out. She can't kill him. He's got to die on his end. And then she's out of the, and then she's out of the marriage. She's, that's, that's the big, we're looking for the loophole. That's the loophole. That's the biblical loophole. Paul says, you know, the law teaches this. Hooray, maybe there's a chance that I can get out from under the law. Here's the problem. The law can't die. The law is eternal. You would expect Paul to say, and so the law died so that you could be delivered to Jesus, but he doesn't say that. Notice what he says in verse 4 when he comes to apply this. He says, you also have died. You have died. See, in order for us to get out of our bad marriage to the condemnation of the law, we had to die. Somebody has to die. For the marriage to be absolved, somebody has to die. And notice what Paul says, my brothers, you have died to the law, through the body of Christ. Notice that Paul is continuing union with Christ. He's saying, you were united to Jesus in his death. We've talked about this a lot. I wish, frankly, if every sermon I could preach to you was about union with Christ in his death and resurrection, I'd be thrilled. Because we so don't get that. And we need to hear it and hear it and hear it. And Paul continues. And now he's saying, you died to the power of the law in the body of Christ. When he died... You died to the law's condemnation. He took the condemnation on himself. He didn't do away with the law. He did away with the condemnation. The law can't be done away with. Until you are in the grave, you shall not commit adultery is always binding on you. Always. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery. That never goes away. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if you're a believer. The law of God continues. It is timeless Yet, for the believer, we have died in the body of Jesus. We have died to the condemnation of the law. The Lord Jesus has taken all of the wrath and condemnation on himself. He was made a curse. He was made a curse. He died, and in his death, we were set free from that bad marriage, and we were delivered, and we were married to another. We were married to another. Notice what Paul says, that you may belong to another. You know, that's one of the greatest, people often talk about our identity. You've got to know your identity in Christ. That's a big thing in a lot of our churches, churches that are grace-centered. Got to know your identity in Christ. I wholeheartedly will teach and preach that. And I think one of the greatest ways that you can think about yourself, if you're a believer, is that you belong to the Lord Jesus, that he bought you with his precious blood that you are united to him as a a wife is to her husband, that there's an inseparable, everlasting union between you and Jesus Christ. And that never changes. Once Once you've been delivered from the condemnation of the law and you've been united to Jesus, you belong to him forever. That union will never, ever, ever pass away. Let me say this. Jesus Christ would have to die again and remain dead for you not to be united to him forever if you're a believer. So Paul says that you may belong to another. You have died to the law, to the condemnation of the law, through the body of Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Let me put it this way. Before you're in Christ, you have the worst marriage ever, and you bring forth only bad fruit. That's all you bring forth. Notice what actually Paul will say here. It's very, very important, verse 5. As he explains this, he says, While we were living in the flesh, 
That is in our fallen condition. It's not talking about your body. It's talking about fallenness under the power of sin. When we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, our sinful passions aroused by the law were working in our members to bear fruit for death. So maybe a helpful illustration. If, if, if I tell my three and a half year old not to touch the electrical outlet, what does he want to do? When you're an unbeliever and somebody says you shall not commit adultery, what do you want to do? It arouses in you what is at work in you, that sin principle. The law comes in and it it heightens it. Remember, Paul actually said this last week. Do you all remember where, notice what he says here. He says um, in verse 19 of chapter 6, Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So, when you're under the law, the law arouses the sinful passions, and it's a downward spiral. More and more and more lawlessness. More and more and more deceit. More and more hardness of heart. More and more impurity. And yet, when we're delivered to Christ and we belong to him, notice what Paul says. That now that he's been risen and we've, we've been united to him, we may bear fruit for God. So, The life of the Christian is the life of knowing the greatest spouse you could ever imagine in Jesus Christ, and it's bearing fruit to God. It is an upward bearing fruit to God. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is going to be very careful not to say the law has no role in your life. He's not ever going to say that. Paul will actually say the contrary. The Ten Commandments continue to be a guide to believers. They continue to show us what God wants, what pleases our Father, how how we ought to walk. What is obedience? I mean, when we even talk about obedience or good works or holiness, we have to define that. That's defined by the Ten Commandments. That, That is the boundary markers of sanctification. So Paul is never going to do away with that, but Paul is going to say, you will never grow in obedience unless you are walking in newness of life, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, when you're convicted of sin, going to him by faith, not trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, not going to the law and saying, I can labor now to keep these commandments and I will labor very diligently to keep them. Paul says, in newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So we and, and I think this is Paul's point. The Christian life is lived in union with Jesus Christ, looking to him by faith. Paul will say this. He'll say, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That if you want to grow in godliness and fruit-bearing and holiness, you do so in the newness of the Spirit realizing that you have been united to the heavenly bridegroom, that you're no longer under law but under grace. How does that work out practically? I think one way it works out practically is that when you fail and when you've sinned, you don't don't try to do better. You don't just try to do better. That's not the answer. That's never the biblical answer. Biblical answer is never, I'm going to try to just be a good person and do better. 
I didn't do good here, I'm going to do better next time. Never, ever, ever does the Bible say, if you didn't do good here, do better next time. What it says is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What it says is, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What it says is that if we go to him, and that if we come to him in faith, and that if we are under the grace of God, we no longer live in condemnation. When we fail, we go back to him. We go back to the cross. I had a professor in seminary who used to say this. We go back to go forward. We go back to the cross to go forward in godliness. We go back to the truths that we've been hearing about week after week after week as we've gone through Romans. We go back to understanding what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection and how that impacts us. And then we grow in holiness. And here's the irony. When you live under the principle of law, you will either become supremely self-righteous, vindictive and vitriolic, or you will live in paralysis and spiritual defeat constantly. Those are your options. If you are under that, you're going to be the most unenjoyable person to be around because you're going to think you're better than everybody or you hate everybody, or you're going to live in defeat and you're just going to be wallowing in self-pity and you're not going to be making any progress. That's the reality. But if you live under grace and you know what Jesus Christ has done for you, even when you fail, you're going to know what you have in Christ and you're going to cling to the Savior and you're going to go back to your heavenly husband and you're going to say, You have done everything for me. You have hushed the law's loud thunder. You have taken the wrath that I deserve. You have taken the condemnation. You are my righteous advocate before the Father. You have drank the cup of wrath that I deserve. You have fulfilled the law's demands for me. You have given me your spirit. You have sealed your promises to me. You have secured eternal life for me. And you know what that's going to do? When all those thoughts come in, you're going to grow in godliness because you're not going to want to live in sin. Why would you ever why would you ever want to sin against the one who gave you the best marriage ever? Why would you ever want to displease the most loving and gracious spouse you could ever imagine? That's what Paul's saying that we're no longer under law, we're under grace. I want to say this this morning, if you're not in Christ, if you if you are not trusting him, if you don't commune with him, if you have never come to him, you are in a, a horrible marriage. And, and it's one that brings forth fruit to death. And it's, it's harsh. And it's, you know, some people, I, I've never understood Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I knew a girl in high school whose boyfriend, maybe it was, demon-possessed, I don't know, was one of the most wicked people I know. And he so emotionally and verbally abused her, and she stayed with him and stayed with him and stayed with him and stayed with him. That's a picture of the unregenerate person with their sin, because we make the marriage bad with our sin, and we get used to it, and we love it, and then we live under the condemnation of the law, and we're just bringing forth fruit to death, and we're unenjoyable to be around, or we're wallowing in self-pity. And Jesus Christ says, come to me, come to me, and I'll give you rest for your souls. I'll give you joy and peace in believing. I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll give you fruit unto everlasting life. Um, 
Let me say this this morning. I imagine most of you who are married work on your marriages, I hope. How much more important is it for you to understand this marriage to Jesus Christ than even your own earthly marriage? And yet, how much time do you invest in meditating over, praying through, seeking after these things that you have in glorious union with Jesus versus how much time do you spend laboring for a healthy marriage here? You know, I'll just say this as we close. A lot of people want, they want self-help manuals, and there's, there's value to practical advice. But you don't get a good marriage by giving your wife everything she wants. You don't get a good marriage by just submitting to your husband and never confronting him on anything or never challenging him on anything or never, never trying to build him up in any way. You don't get a good marriage through all these little techniques. You get a good marriage by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and knowing that you are wed to the heavenly bridegroom. And even in, in the physical marriage relationship, there will be fruit unto life if Jesus Christ is at the center of your marriage. Um, if you are in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to meditate on him as the heavenly bridegroom. You meditate on what it means that he gave himself for you. That he, he, he died, God died, so that you might die to the condemnation of the law and be married to another and belong to another. Um, I was at a concert last night, and thinking about how we were cheering for the performance. And I thought, isn't it sad that we don't get more excited about these truths when we get so excited about sports and music and performance on this level? These things should stir your affections that you should be so overwhelmed with joy in understanding what you have as a believer living under the grace of God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know so little of what it means for us to be united to the heavenly bridegroom, to be not under law but under grace. We pray that you would help us to love your law and yet to realize that we are no longer under its condemning stronghold, that you have caused us to die with Christ through his body on the cross and that you have raised us up to newness of life. We pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the greatness of the reality of living in a world of grace. Father, we pray that you would give us grace upon grace in Christ Jesus and that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.